This is the Proactive IT Podcast. This week, the latest in IT and cybersecurity news, plus securing Zoom, how safe are other collaboration applications, and the email continues to be the way in. This is episode 24. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Proactive IT Podcast. Each week, we talk about the latest in tech and cyber news, compliance, and more. We also bring you real-world examples to learn from so that you can better protect your business and your identity. This podcast is brought to you by Nawaj Tech, a client-focused and security-minded IT consultant located in Central Connecticut. You can find us at nawajtech.com. That's N-W-A-J-Tech.com. All right, thank you for joining us during this pandemic. We know you could be nowhere else right now so thank you for joining us because um i don't know i guess you could be watching tv uh wherever you're listening to this if you could like share comment or review would be spectacular i would greatly appreciate it i would drive to your house except i'm not allowed to right now um and uh if you are in a hipaa compliant business please go to facebook and in a search type in get hipaa compliance and join that group because we share HIPAA information all the time. And um, you'll find it valuable. You'll help, it'll help your business and you'll become a little more compliant, a little less scary to patients and to the HHS. Um, we did not, well, we did get a couple of questions this week actually, but they're gonna be answered throughout the show. One of the questions was um, how to deal with all of the Facebook news and warnings and so forth. The other one was I received a few times today, uh, this week, sorry. Um, emails, uh, uh, people getting emails that um, say that they've been viewed on their webcam doing certain activities that most people wouldn't be proud of. So we're going to go over that too um, because there actually was a news story on that. Uh, but let's start with the updates, like we always do, the Patch Tuesday updates. Of course, Patch Tuesday is next week, the 14th. Um, so no Microsoft Windows updates yet, but there is a Microsoft update. We'll get to that in a moment. But first of all, Chrome 81 was released with 32 security fixes, so you'll want to update Google Chrome. Firefox 75 was released with Windows 10 performance improvements, and I believe there were some security issues addressed there as well. So you'll want to update Firefox as well. Um, and that will be across all your different operating systems. Juniper Networks was released a security has released a security update um, to address multiple vulnerabilities in various Juniper products. So if you're using Juniper, get that taken care of. And uh, Microsoft, as I mentioned, Microsoft released their April 2020 Office updates with crash fixes. And I'm going to read from Bleeping Computer on this one. Microsoft released the April 2020 non-security Microsoft Office updates that come with crash fixes as well as performance and stability improvements for Windows installer editions of Office 2016. For instance, this month's series of Office non-security updates fixed an issue where Word 2016 would crash when trying to save certain documents in an unexpected crash issue impacting OneNote 2016 when the user agent string is longer 
than 128 characters. So after installing Office 2016 KB4484101 and OneNote 2016 KB4475586 updates, you will be able to save any document formats and use OneNote with user agents of any length without the apps crashing unexpectedly. So make sure you apply your Microsoft Office 2016 updates. And that is all the Patch Tuesday update news I have for you this week. Of course, next week we'll have a lot more. Alright, it's time for all the news that is fit for print or web, you know, whichever. Um, first up, on infosecurity-magazine.com, Google Mobility reports show impact of lockdown. So unless you've been living under a rock, and if you are, then it doesn't really matter. But unless you've been living under a rock, then you know most countries are locked down to some degree at least, including the U.S. A lot of states, including Connecticut, where I am, are pretty much locked down. We have, I mean, we're not told we have to stay in the house, but we're strongly encouraged. Um, so this is this is along those lines. Google Mobility reports show impact of lockdown. Google published reports today that use aggregated phone location data to show how closely lockdown regulations are being followed around the world. The company said its COVID-19 community mobility reports would provide insights into what has changed in response to work from home, shelter in place, and other policies aimed at flattening the curve of this pandemic. The reports use aggregated, anonymized data gathered from cell phones to chart movement trends over time. Specifically, they reveal how busy popular destinations such as shops, parks, recreation spaces, grocery stores, pharmacies, transit stations, residential areas, and workplaces have been since the majority of countries ask people to stay at home. Initially, the report will cover 131 countries and regions and show trends that have emerged over several weeks with the most recent included at least 48 hours old. Now, I did look, and I, and uh, this is a few days ago, out of my own curiosity, I believe there's 195 countries around the world. So this is originally 131 countries. I don't know if that's still true. Today's reports show a traffic comparison over a five-week period between February 16th and March 29th. So this is a week ago now. Data gathered from a little more than about 10 days ago. Data gathered from UK shows that Visits to transport stations are down 75%, while 85% fewer people are frequenting public recreation places such as restaurants, cafes, and movie theaters. In Italy, where around 14,000 people have died, and it's, that number is higher now, after contra contracting the novel coronavirus, strict lockdown measures have resulted in 94% fewer people in shops, restaurants, and cafes, and parks have been footfall dropped by 90%. By contrast, in S Sweden, where no strict measures have been introduced, to keep people in their homes, Google found that 18% fewer people were in work, 24 fewer were, used, were using recreational spaces, and use of transport stations had dropped by 36%. Only data from users who have turned on a location history setting will be used to create different reports. Currently, the setting is turned off by default. People who have the location history turned on can turn it off at any time from their Google account and can also delete location history data directly from their timeline. Google says the reports will not intrude on privacy of individual people because no personally identifiable information like an individual's location, contacts, or movement is made available at any point. So take that as you may. Um, you know, Google says that PII is not involved. Um, turn it on, turn it off. But it is interesting to me to see these statistics, and that's why I share this. Um, hopefully you are staying home to prevent the spread. 
The Hacker News reports how just visiting a site could have hacked your iPhone or MacBook camera. This was on April 2nd. If you use Apple iPhone or MacBook, here we have a piece of alarming news for you. Turns out merely visiting a website, not just malicious, but also legitimate sites, unknowingly loading malicious ads as well, using Safari browser could have let remote attackers secretly access your device's camera, microphone, or location, and in some cases, save passwords as well. Apple, Apple recently paid a $75,000 bounty reward to an ethical hacker, Ryan Pickren, who practically demonstrated the hack and helped the company patch a total of seven new vulnerabilities before any real attacker could take advantage of them. Fixes were issued in a series of updates to Safari, spanning versions 13.05, released in January 28, and Safari 13.1, published on March 24th. If the malicious website wanted camera access, all it had to do was masquerade as a trusted video conferencing website such as Skype, Zoom, or, or Zoom, sorry, Pickering said. When chained together, three of the re reported Safari flaws could have allowed malicious sites to impersonate any legit site a victim trusts and access camera or microphone by abusing the permissions that were otherwise explicitly granted by the victim to the trusted domain only. Um, so that has been fixed, so make sure you do have the, the latest version of Safari on your your iPhone or iPad. Department of Justice says Zoom bombing is illegal, could lead to jail time. This is also on bleeping computer. The Department of Justice and offices of the United States attorneys are warning that Zoom bombing is illegal and those who are involved can be charged with federal and state crimes. As more people are working from home or conducting distance learning due to the coronavirus pandemic, the Zoom video conferencing software has become heavily utilized for remote meetings, online classrooms, exercise classes, and family and friend get-togethers. And I have used it for all of those things, so that is that is very true. Um, since then, people have cr are crashing or Zoom bombing online meetings to record them as pranks to be shared on YouTube and TikTok or to spread hate, offensive images, and even threatening language. And that has, has happened. All of those things have happened. Not to me, but all of those things have happened. And I've heard some people tell these stories already. Zoom meeting IDs are also being traded and shared on Discord, Reddit, and hacker forums, according to ZDNet, where they're used to conduct Zoom raids that hijack and disrupt an online meeting or class. And I'm going to talk about... Uh, later on in this podcast, how to protect yourself from these attacks. Now, Zoom did, I believe today, I'm recording this on Thursday, April 9th, did today say that Zoom meeting IDs would no longer be shown in the Zoom window. Zoom bombing is illegal in a press release on the Department of Justice website, United States Attorneys for Michigan have stated that people involved in Zoom bombing could be charged with federal and state crimes that lead to fine and imprisonment. You think Zoom bombing is funny? Let's see how funny it is after you get arrested, stated Matthew Schneider, United States Attorney for Eastern Michigan. If you interfere with a teleconference or public meeting in Michigan, you could have federal, state, or local law enforcement knocking at your door. If, the, if an individual is found to be backing or hacking sorry, into or disrupting online meetings, classrooms, and conferences, charges may include disrupting a public meeting, computer intrusion, using a computer to commit a crime, hate crimes, fraud, transmitting threatening communications. This week, the FBI released an advisory about Zoom bombing attacks and asked the victims of teleconferencing hijackings to file a complaint with the Internet Crime Complaint Center, IC3. So um, if you have been Zoom bombed, um, continue to listen to this podcast because I'm going to tell you how to prevent that, but also you should report to the FBI IC3. Um, 
um, along the lines of Zoom, Bleeping Computer also reports a public service announcement fake Zoom installers being used to distribute malware. Attackers are taking advantage of the increased popularity of Zoom co video conferencing service to distribute installers that are bundled with malware and adware applications. As people are spending more time indoors and performing physical social distancing, many have started using Zoom meetings for remote work, exercise classes, and virtual get-togethers. Knowing this, threat actors have started distributing Zoom client installers bundled with malware such as coin miners, remote access trojans, and adware bundles. Today, Trend Micro reports that they have found a Zoom installer being distributed that will also install a cryptocurrency miner on victims' computers. We found a, crypt a coin miner bundled in with the legitimate installer of Zoom video conferencing app, luring users to want to install the software but end up unwittingly downloading a malicious file. The compromised files are not from Zoom's official download center and are assumed to come from fraudulent websites. We have been working with Zoom to ensure that they are able to communicate this with users appropriately. So this is not anything that Zoom can do. There's nothing Zoom could do to prevent this except educate users. You should be downloading from zoom.us. And again, I'm going to talk about these things in a little bit. Um, threat post Skype themes apps hide a raft of malware. So it's not just Zoom. This is a Microsoft application now. Hundreds of thousands of malware files are disguised as well-known social conferencing and collaboration apps. Popular conferencing apps have become a major cybercrime lure during the COVID-19 work-from-home era, and Skype is the undisputed leader when it comes to being impersonated by malicious downloads researchers have found. An April analysis from Kaspersky uncovered a total of 120,000 suspicious malware and adware packages in the wild masquerading as versions of the video calling app. It should be said that Skype isn't alone in being targeted. The research found that among a total of, of 1,300 suspicious files not using the Skype name, 42% were disguised as Zoom, followed by WebEx, and we're going to talk about WebEx as well. 22% GoToMeeting, 13% Flock, 11% and Slack, 11%. With the rise of social distancing, Kaspersky experts investigated the threat landscape for social meetings, applications, to make sure users are safe and their communication experience is enjoyable. The firm said in an emailed analysis, social meeting applications currently provide easy ways for people to con connect via video, audio, or text when no other means of communications are available. However, cyber fraudsters do not hesitate to use this fact and try to distribute various cyber threats under the guise of popular apps. So something to think about. It's not just Zoom. I know everybody's throwing their arms up about Zoom. But it is Skype and Cisco WebEx and other applications as well. Um, Interpol, this is a bleeping computer again. Interpol ransomware attacks on hospitals are increasing. The International Criminal Police Organization, or we know it as Interpol, warns that criminals are increasingly attempting to lock out hospitals out of critical systems by attempting to deploy ransomware on their networks despite currently ongoing COVID-19 outbreak. This doesn't come as a surprise, even though some operators behind various ransomware strains have told Bleeping Computer last month that they will stop targeting health and medical organizations during the pandemic. Once that, since then, Mays released data stolen from drug testing company encrypted before their statement of not targeting healthcare, while Ryu continues to attack hospitals despite most of them being flooded with new COVID-19 cases every day. So the Mays case was Hammersmith. We've talked about it a couple times. I'm not sure if it's further down in this article, but in UK, they were preparing to test COVID-19 vaccines. They were hit with ransomware before Mays said they would not attack any healthcare facilities. Um, and But the release of the data happened after they said they would not do it. So 
Russian-speaking threat actors have also attacked two European companies in the pharmaceutical and manufacturing industries in incidents suspected to involve ransomware. Last week, Microsoft that said that it had started to send targeted alerts to dozens of hospitals regarding vulnerable public-facing VPN devices. Uh, those were Pulse VPN and gateways located on their networks to help them prevent Revel, Soda Nokibi ransomware attackers from breaching their networks. Following this trend, Interpol's cybercrime threat response team at its Cyber Fusion Center said over the weekend that it has detected a significant increase in the number of attempted ransomware attacks against key organizations and infrastructure engaged in the virus response. After this discovery, the Interpol says that it has issued a purple notice alerting people to, in all its 194 member countries to, to the heightened ransomware threat. Now, this is... Um, this talks about hospitals, attacks on hospitals, but this is going to be healthcare across the board, people. This is going to go from massive hospital systems all the way down to single member healthcare practices. So we definitely need to, uh, everybody's on attack right now. It's not even just healthcare, it's everybody. We need to um, keep our guard up during this time even more so than usual. And here's a few suggestions in this article. You've heard all of these before on this podcast, so but we'll go over it again because it is um, it is important that we do this. Open only emails or download software applications from trusted sources. So back to Zoom and Skype. Only trust from only download from their websites. Do not click on links or open attachments and emails which you are not expecting to receive or come from an unknown sender. Secure email systems to protect from spam which could be infected. Back up all important files frequently and store them independently from your system. Ensure you have latest antivirus software installed on all systems and mobile devices and that it is constantly running and use strong, unique passwords for all systems and update them regularly and add to that, use multi-factor authentication. Now, uh, on top of that, this is a, an addendum by me. Um, in U.S., the SBA, there, there are a few different loan options and, and financial help for small businesses in the country. If you're going to apply for them because it, you are putting in a lot of sense of information, including your social security number, the business tax ID, uh, your bank account information, your name and address, and just a lot of sensitive information. So make sure you go into sba.gov. Don't go to, don't click on any links. Just type in sba.gov if you're going to move forward with that type of information. Type in your bank's website address directly as well um, because this is, it, they are going after all types of businesses and people out there so and at this time because our guard is down because we're more concerned with what's going on with COVID-19. All right, just reported today, this is probably good news, um, Zoom taps ex-Facebook CISO amid security snafus lawsuit. The online video conferencing service added Alex Stamos to the team and has formed an expert advisory board to grapple with the pains of its COVID-19 growth spurt. So Zoom jumped from about 10 million users per month to two, I think it was 200 million or I don't remember the exact number, but a significant increase in the last few months. As it faces a major lawsuit, Zoom is taking a significant step to bolster security and privacy efforts by recruiting an industry heavy hitter, former Facebook CISO Alex Stamos, to provide special counsel. It has also named third-party expert security advisory teams. The popular video conferencing service is making the changes as it faces a class action lawsuit filed by one of its shareholders on Tuesday in U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California. It alleges that the company made materially false and misleading statements that overstated its privacy and security measures, and it claims that Zoom didn't disclose its lack of end-to-end -end encryption. Zoom has experienced a raft of security-related growing pains, 
during a boom in usage amid the COVID-19 lockdown as people take work environments, school lessons, and dates with friends online. Zoom now says that it aims to clean up its issues from both the product side product side and taking a high-level executive approach. Zoom founder Eric Yan said in a blog post published Wednesday, Zoom has been seeing tremendous growth and new use cases emerge over the past few weeks, and we are committed to ensuring that the safety, privacy, and security of our platform is worthy of the trust of all of our users, he wrote. So um, good news for for those concerned about security on Zoom, and you should be, of course, concerned, especially if you're you're working with sensitive information, um, but this is good news that they've hired someone who's going to address this for sure. Uh, Cisco, also on thread post, Cisco critical update phishing attack steals WebEx credentials. So emails purporting to be Cisco critical security advisory are actually part of a phishing campaign trying to steal victims' WebEx credentials. An ongoing phishing campaign is reeling in victims with a recycled Cisco security advisory that warns of critical vulnerability. The campaign urges victims to update only to steal their credentials for Cisco's WebEx web conferencing platform instead. The campaign is looking to leverage the wave of remote workers who, in the midst of coronavirus pandemic, have come to rely on online conferencing tools like WebEx, as well as Zoom and other platforms. With the upward spike in online meetings, compromised WebEx credentials could be a cyber criminal's golden ticket into web conferencing calls where sensitive files and data are shared, among other malicious activities. Targeting users of teleconferencing brands is nothing new, said Ashley Tran with CoFence's Phishing Defense Center in a Thursday analysis, but with most organizations adhering to guidelines that non-essential workers stay home, the rapid influx of remote workers is prime picking for attackers trying to spoof brands like WebEx. We anticipate there will continue to be an increase in remote working phishing in the months to come. And I've been saying that, and it, it's, you know, so this is WebEx. We talked about Skype, and we talked about Zoom already. So the attacks are on the rise. We need to be vigilant. Um, don't click. Just think before you click. That's, uh, you know, something I'm going to work on for 2020. I had planned on working on it, but I've been super busy with addressing my clients' issues and even some new clients um, working working from home and so forth. Researchers said the phishing emails are being sent with various attention-grabbing subject lines such as critical update or alert and come from the spoofed email address meetings at webex.com. And so critical update or alert playing on people's fears. As I say, phishing always, play, always plays on emotions and usually that's fear. So don't click on those and uh, avoid being becoming another phishing statistic. And our final bit of news, NASA under significantly increased hacking phishing attacks. NASA has been significantly increasing malicious activity from both, has seen, sorry, has seen significantly increasing malicious activity from both nation state hackers and cyber criminals targeting the U.S. space agency systems and personnel working from home during the COVID-19 pandemic. Mitigation tools and measures set in place by NASA's Security Operations Center successfully blocked a wave of cyber attacks. The agency reporting doubled the number of phishing attacks, attempts, and exponential increase in malware attacks, and doubled the number of malicious sites being blocked to protect users from potential malicious attacks. So there have been a, an increase in domains registered with the word Zoom, with the word Skype, and I'm sure with, at this point with WebEx, maybe NASA, COVID-19, there's a bunch of them. So we, we have to be careful what we're clicking through to and what we're looking for when we go on the Internet. Um, 
so there again, NASA is reporting an increase. This means everybody's being attacked. It's not just NASA. It's not just hospitals. Everybody. Right, it's time for our hot topics and what is hotter, well, besides COVID-19, what is hotter than Zoom right now? Um, so I wrote a blog post about, it's well, so the title of the blog is 12 Easy Ways to Secure Your Zoom Meetings. And um, it, this applies to a lot of different things, though. So I wanted to, to go through this and um, help you to understand how to secure your meetings. While some of the issues were definitely Zoom, some of them, some of the issues could have been prevented by users understanding how to use Zoom as well. So, twelve easy ways to secure your Zoom meetings. This is a blog on NwajTech.com, N-W-A-J-Tech.com. It's been a while since I put a new blog post up, so um, you know, go there, check it out, leave us a comment. That would be great. So we're living in interesting times, to say the least. There's no doubt about it. COVID-19 has changed the way we work and live, and in some cases, permanently. People who have never worked from home suddenly find themselves doing it full-time. The COVID-19 pandemic has also challenged the technology world in ways it's never seen before. There's been a huge increase in phishing attacks, scams, and malware using the COVID-19 pandemic as a means of infiltrating victims. Employees and business owners that are not entirely comfortable working remotely are finding that security challenges are different and somewhat unique when plugged into their home network. I have spent the first three weeks of our partial quarantine helping businesses and individuals prepare for life during a pandemic and isolation. I help with securing their computers and networks, connected to resources and applications necessary to complete their work, helping with VoIP and in almost every case, help with setting up and using Zoom. Zoom is a powerful tool. The primary reason for using Zoom is video conferencing and collaboration. They have plans that allow you to host video conferencing calls with up to 100 people for just $15 a month. They even have a free plan that allows you allows up to 100 people so long as you keep the meeting under 40 minutes. Now, I have heard that they are they have uh, lifted that f- temporarily, the 40-minute limit. So I'm not sure if that's true. I haven't challenged it. We have a paid account, so we don't need to use the, the free account, but... I've heard that there are, of course, other plans that include more features, but almost small, most small businesses will find $15 plan more than enough. You can do more than Zoom, more with Zoom than host meetings. Here are some of the other things I have done with Zoom: screen share, remote support, record videos, including screen captures, and then upload to social media, record podcasts, have one-to-one meetings, and virtual training. As you can see, it's a pretty useful tool. The ugly side of Zoom. Zoom exploded in popularity when the pandemic began to unfold. It went from 10 million people using it in December of 2019 to 200 million in March. That's some intense growth. It was, of course, fueled by the COVID-19 pandemic and employer employers telling their employees to stay home and work. Zoom's platform has remained stable throughout. I have not had any issues and I have only seen a few complaints about connectivity problems. The irony is the day after I posted this, there was an outage uh, I believe it was Saturday, there was an outage. That could have been attributed to the load on ISPs as well. As I was writing this, there were reports, uh, okay, so I put it in here. As I was writing this, there were reports of Zoom web being down, but I was able to connect. Where Zoom has run into problems is with vulnerabilities and attacks. In the last few weeks, Zoom has been attacked by random people dropping into meetings. This is called Zoom bombing. Those people then shared pornographic materials, hate messaging, and disruptive behavior. 
There have also been a few vulnerabilities discovered, and I've linked a few articles here. So Zoom lets attackers steal Windows credentials, run programs via UNC links. Ex-NSA hacker drops new zero-day doom for Zoom on Mac OS X. Zoom kills iOS's app's data-sharing Facebook feature. And Zoom also came under scrutiny for privacy concerns during their increased usage. They have addressed all of those issues, though. So as you can see, there's a lot to deal with. There's good news, though. Zoom has patched all the above issues already. Zoom has also allocated all engineers who were working on feature improvements and additions to the development of improved security. Zoom CEO Eric S. Yan recently wrote a blog post post addressing the vulnerabilities and concerns. Essentially, he explained that recent growing pains contributed to the vulnerabilities and challenges. He was very transparent with what has been done, what has been done, and what they will be doing going forward. Zoom's issues are not solely theirs. They are also being belong to the businesses and consumers using the platform. Security is everybody's responsibility. And until everybody takes it seriously, these things will continue to happen. I attempted five I attended five meetings over Zoom last week. Three of them did not have a password on them. I attended one just today that did not have a password on it. So as I'm recording this, this is Thursday, April 9th. So how do you secure Zoom meetings? Here's a list of 12 things you could do to secure your Zoom meetings going forward. Use a password for your meeting. When you set up your Zoom meetings, you can add a password. The password can be whatever you want it to be. It automatically generates a six-digit number, but it doesn't have to be numbers. You can also edit existing, exist, existing meetings to add a password. Use the waiting room. This feature makes it so you have to approve anyone who wants to join the Zoom meeting. If you're not sure what the person who the person is, you can screen them to ensure your meeting is not a Zoom, not Zoom bombed. Do not share your Zoom meeting information publicly. Don't share it on social media. The best thing you can do is to require people who want to attend to RSVP and then send them the meeting information. Ensure your Zoom client is updated. Do not use outdated Zoom clients. So since I wrote this, which is five days ago, there's been two updates to Zoom so on Windows, so make sure you do update it. Disable participant screen sharing. You can can grant screen sharing to individuals as needed. Lock lock the meeting once everyone has joined. Require host to be present during the meetings before the meeting starts. Secure meetings with end-to-end encryption. Yes, this feature is available through has been though it has been publicized that it is not. And so when I wrote that, that was what was being told to us. But on April seventh, the CEO Eric Yan, Zoom meetings aren't end-to-end encrypted despite misleading marketing. And uh, I've linked to the article on that one too. Allow only authenticated users to join meetings. This means users need to create an account on zoom.us to join a meeting. You can further limit this to specific email domains if it's relevant to your meeting. Use generating meeting IDs instead of personal meeting ID. If you do not, if you do use a personal meeting ID, do not share pictures of your meetings to social media or on the internet. This makes it easier to find your meeting. Now, again, as I said earlier, Zoom has now um, removed the meeting ID from the Zoom window. Do not download the Zoom client from anywhere other than zoom.us. There has been a surge in domains being purchased that include the word Zoom. This suggests that there will be malware and phishing attacks launched using Zoom to get your attention. So we already reported on that. And of course, my favorite, use a secure password and enable two-factor authentication on your Zoom account. Logging into Zoom US will give whoever logs in access to your meeting and account security information. Setting up two-factor authentication dramatically decreases the chance that someone can brute force your Zoom account. 12 steps to secure your Zoom meetings might seem like a lot, but the steps are pretty easy. Some of them are configured by default. 
It also helps to spend time logged into your account on Zoom's website to understand the different features. Zoom is a great productivity tool, but like anything else, growing pains will challenge its stability, security, and bring into question its policies. It seems Zoom is on top of things rapidly, fixing any vulnerabilities and addressing concerns that come up. As long as Zoom's clients do their part, we can ride this pandemic out together using one of the few tools that have kept us connected and made this planet a little smaller. Stay healthy, stay safe, and stay secure. That's how I close all my podcasts now, but I also close out that um, blog post. Um, along, So one of the last things I talked about here was um, understanding the features. And then what I see is a lot of people want to turn on um, the green screen feature where you have you know a custom background. And that's interesting to me because um, a lot of people are spending time doing that, but nobody's spending time turning on two-factor authentication on Zoom.us. So get that turned on because it'll it'll slow down the spread for sure. Along the lines of Zoom, we have an article here from ThreatPost that we're going to go over beyond Zoom, how safe for Slack and other collaboration apps. Now, I'm a big fan of Slack as well. We use Slack. Um, for communication purposes, um, so this is interesting to me. COVID-19's effect on work footprints has created an unprecedented challenge for IT and security staff. Many departments are scrambling to enable collaboration apps for all, but without proper security, they can be a big risk. As the coronavirus pandemic continues to worsen, remote collaboration platforms now fixtures in many workers' new normal are facing more scrutiny. Popular video conferencing app Zoom may currently be in the cybersecurity hot seat, but other collaboration tools such as Slack, Trello, WebEx, and Microsoft Teams are certainly not immune from cyber criminal attention. For organizations leaning on these platforms, security should be top of mind. A failure to lock down Slack at Al could lead to data breaches, brand damage, malware infestations, and more. Researchers say that attackers are hard at work looking for new weaknesses to achieve all of the latter. Fortunately enough, best practices can go a long way to shrinking the risk. Collaboration app security bugs, not hypothetical. The risk posed by collaboration platforms is far from hypothetical. In March, for example, a critical vulnerability vulnerability was found in Slack, which could allow automated account takeovers and lead to data breaches. According to HackerOne's bug bounty report, a HTTP request smuggling bug and a proof of concept was used to force open redirects within Slack. We reported this, by the way, leading users to rogue client outfitted with Slack domain cookies. When victims attached to the malicious client, their obsession cookies would be, could be harvested and later used to take over the account. The attack could also be automated. Automated account takeover attacks like Slack just had to deal with our pervasive, said Jason Kent, a hacker in residence at Sequence in an interview. We see this takeover Attempts all the time. The hackers learn a login or password recovery workflow and start the attack on the logins they know are valid. Most of the time, these attacks have been automated, utilizing bots to take over as many accounts as possible. Aside from Slack, Cisco WebEx has had its share of security flaws. In March, Cisco patched two high-severity vulnerabilities in the video conferencing platform, which, if exploited, could allow an attacker to execute code on an affected system. And earlier in the year, it addressed a bug that would let strangers barge in on password-protected meetings, no authentication necessary, presenting a serious data exposure concern. And of course, there's Zoom, which has gained widespread popularity for personal work use since the stay-at-home orders went into effect across the country. The company has faced an onslaught of security woes in the last two weeks, including a pair of zero days and various privacy problems. Apart from exploiting security bugs, cyber criminals have other attack vectors when it comes to collaboration apps like Slack. Microsoft Teams 
and others have messaging components that can be used for phishing attacks and to deliver malware payloads through links and attachments just like email. External attackers can leverage stolen credentials or conduct brute force and credential stuffing attacks to gain access to these platforms, said Garrett Lansing, field CTO at StealthBits. Speaking to threat posts, they can then compromise the information those credentials provided access to, using it to either com- complete their mission or for intelligence to attack other targets within the company. They could also go as far as to impersonate the employee in conversations and send malicious attacks attachments to pivot onto employees' workstations. Um, Atlassian, which is uh, which has a service desk type software. A lot of the, a lot of businesses made the Atlassian service desk public facing during this work from home time, and um, they have been exposed as well, where people are impersonating employees and things like that. Collaboration apps also subject to misconfiguration. Popular online pl- collaboration platform Trello, for instance, which is used to cooperate. Co- uh, used in corporate settings to organize to-do lists and coordinate team tasks has a problem that is indexed by Google if its boards are set to public, and we reported that a while ago too. And public board-specific contents can also be searched using a special search called Dork. This setting is surprisingly easy to implement by mistake, researchers said, as evidenced by an incident earlier this year at office-based company Regis. In that case, a Trello board exposed the performance ratings of hundreds of Regis staff. The Trello incident was due to end users setting their boards to public and not fully realizing how easy it was for someone else to search for the public boards. James McQuiggan, security awareness advocate at No Before, told ThreatPost the groups had that created the boards were posting sensitive information and thus exposing the unnecessary risk to their organization. If the company's collaboration platform enables external communication, it can present yet an other more opportunities for attackers. For instance, if an attack attacker were able to get into a developer's channel inside a retail organization, they might help with a problem and actually inject their own flaws, Kent explained. Magecart jumps to mind. A person could simply say, you can add this JavaScript file to the next production drop. There are ecosystems weaknesses too. For instance, Slack offers a software library containing add-ons that can be installed in just a couple of clicks. And so does um, Microsoft Teams. An attacker could create a Slack add-on that advertises some great features but also reads channel data, said Matt Gayford, principal consultant at Crypsis Group. If the end user mistakenly installs the add-on, they could expose all Slack channels to the attacker. In terms of actual attacks, Otavio Freer, CTO and co-founder of Safeguard Cyber, told ThreatPost that coordinated campaigns against corporate instances of collaboration platforms can be difficult to pinpoint, making things challenging for security teams. The first step to compromising... Users' collaboration accounts might initially look business, email compromise, or social spear phishing at first, he explained. As an example, he detailed one attack impacting Slack that his company was involved in mitigating. Slack's strength and vulnerability is its connectedness to other apps, he said. For one customer, we were brought in because they had an instance where a hiring system was mapped to an HR Slack channel, a resume that was infected, Word doc uploaded to the system, which they pushed a notification to the HR channel where hundreds of employees opened the document at the same time. So, and then the article goes on to talk about um, the risks and best practices, but, you know, this is just another example of how um, collaboration tools and um, work-from-home tools and things like that uh, communication tools can be used 
can be abused very easily and taken advantage of. So it's not just Zoom. We, all we heard about was Zoom for the most part, but it's also Skype, Microsoft Teams, Slack, things like that, well, Cisco WebEx. So it's probably most important to be as careful as you can be. And I, I know I keep stating that, but it is what it is. We need to... We need to um, we need to remain vigilant. We need to make sure we're doing our due diligence, and we need to analyze everything in the, in a hyper connected world right now. Um, and I know it's easy to not do that. I know it's easy to overlook things when we're focused more on what's going on with COVID nineteen and work from home and homeschooling and all of that good stuff. So, um, just. Uh, you know, ride the storm, do your best. And if, of course, if you have questions, feel free to reach, reach out to us. But I'm going to share one more thing. Naked Security by Sophos. Two school kids sue Google for collecting biometrics. Two school children have sued Google, alleging that it's illegally collecting their voice prints, face prints, and other personally identifiable information. The students were identified only as HK and JC in the complaint, which was filed on Thursday in San Jose, California, in the U.S. District Court of Northern California. The children are suing through their father, Clinton Farwell. The complaint notes that Google has infiltrated the country's primary and secondary school systems by distributing its Chromebook laptops, which come pre-installed with its G Suite for Education platform. That suite includes student versions of Gmail, Calendar, Drive, Docs, Sheets, and other Google apps. In order to use those apps, the kids had to speak into the laptop's audio recording device so Google could record their voices, and they had to look into the laptop's camera so Google could scan their faces. So I will say my kids... You know, my son took home a Chromebook, and uh, he did not have to do those things for the for the for the Chromebook to work. In order to use those apps, the kid. Okay, I read that. According to the lawsuit, over half of the nation's school children use Google's education products, including those in Illinois, most of whom are under the age of 13. Illinois comes into play because it's got the strictest biometrics privacy law in the land, the Biometric Information Privacy Act (BIPA). BIPA requires private enti entities like Google to first get our informed consent before collecting our biometrics, including face prints and voice prints. The complaint alleges that Google's violating both BIPA and the nation's strictest federal online children's privacy law, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, COPA. COPA requires websites and online services to fully and clearly disclose their data collection use and disclosure practices and that they obtain verifiable parental consent before collecting, using, or disclosing the data they collect from children younger than 13. Incredibly, the complaint says Google's violating both of these privacy protection laws at the same time. The lawsuit says that they that besides face prints and voice prints, Google's also illegally creating, collecting, storing, using students' PII, including physical location, websites they visit, every search term they use in Google's search engine, and the results they click on, the videos they watch on YouTube, personal contact lists, voice recordings, safe passwords, and other behavioral information all without verifiable parental consent from the complaint. Google has complete control over the data collection use and retention practices of a G Suite for education service, including biometric data and other personally identifying information collected through the use of service and uses, uses this control not only to secretly and unlawfully monitor and provide profile children, but to do so without the knowledge or consent of these children's parents. The plaintiffs are requesting a jury trial they want Google to stop collecting the data and to destroy whatever data it has. This suite, this, I'm sorry, the suit is also seeking 5,000 per student for each of Google's alleged intentional or reckless violations and 1,000 for each negligent violation. 
This, of course, is not the first time that Google's had to do this. There was something earlier this year out of New Mexico, and um, here we are. So Google's being sued. I don't know what will come of it. i am be curious to see what Google's response is. You know, I don't know how much of that would be through the school and how much of that would be Google itself because I know that my kids did not have to do voice or facial recognition to set up the Chromebooks. And they don't use, they actually don't use Gmail for the email, um, which I thought was interesting because they're using Microsoft. But, um, you know, my son did mention Copa the other day and that caught me off guard. I didn't know that he knew anything about it, but apparently he has been talked to about it at school. Um, so maybe it's the school system. So we'll wait to see what happens, what comes of this complaint and lawsuit going forward. All right, it is time for the HIPAA education portion of our podcast, um, and I'm going to talk about email, and the reason I'm going to talk about email is because the number of phishing attacks and email compromises around the healthcare industry, it just continues to astound me that it's, it's um, I believe it's 40-something percent of all the HIPAA breaches are through email. So what I'm going to share with you is the um, health industry cybersecurity practices, which short uh, for short is called HICCP, it's H-I-C-P, uh, managing threats and protecting patients' resources and templates. And what I have, what I've shared, and it'll be in the show notes, is the framework. It is a document for small business, small, small healthcare providers, small organizations, sub practices, and it is it is mapped to the NIST frame cybersecurity framework. Uh, so we're going to talk what specifically about email. So this talks about a bunch of different ways that um, a bunch of different things that you need to look at during a risk assessment and address during a risk assessment in healthcare. So this is specific to healthcare, health industry, cybersecurity practice. I will say this though, it could be used pretty much for any business. And so it talks about different areas, including endpoint protection systems, access management, data protection and loss prevention, um, network management, incident response, medical device security, cybersecurity policies, and so forth. So we're only going to focus on email for the purpose of this podcast because it is something that needs to be addressed. And in this document, it says for email protection systems, these are the different things you should be doing. First of all, a baseline configuration of information technology, industrial control systems is created and maintained incorporating security principles e.g. concept of least functionality. So if you have email, which of course you do, everybody does, you need the baseline configuration to understand what exactly your email is capable of. And you could be checking things like, is are we able to access email through a website? Uh, you know, in the case of if we're using Office 365, are, can we go to outlook.office.com uh, and log in through there? And I will tell you for most of my clients, that is locked down. They cannot log into office. I'm sorry, outlook.office.com. Um, but you know, maybe there's a reason for you to have that turned on. So if you do have it turned on, do you have multi-factor authentication set up? Now Microsoft is now making it mandatory for multi-factor authentication. Um, your email will basically stop working 
and Outlook and other third-party tools if you don't have multi-factor authentication turned on. Um, do, can I set up my email on a mobile device? Again, up to the practice. Some practices might have a need. Maybe only certain people need to have mobile access to email. And again, this, this could apply to any business. And if you do, how are we securing that even further? Does that mobile device have biometrics turned on? Uh, is, is that device locked? Do you have device locking capabilities, device wipe capabilities? Do we have MDM set up on that device? Um, the laptop, if you have a laptop, and most healthcare providers will have laptops, do we have um, biometrics on that laptop? Does it have a password on it? Does it have the uh, remote wipe? Is it encrypted? Are the emails encrypted, end-to-end -end encryption? Do you have a BAA with that email? So all of these are through baseline configuration, BAA being um, business associate agreement. And there are a few email providers that will sign it, the two biggest ones being Office 365 through Microsoft and Google's G Suite. Um, but if you don't have a business associate agreement, then you need to walk away from that email provider and find something different. Um, so that's a lot of stuff that, that you need to address in the baseline configuration. Um, data transit is protected is another area. So we talked about this with... Um, Zoom, do you have encryption? Is it in, when it when your email is in transit? Is it encrypted? So you can send encrypted email. Some of the email providers will have the ability to send encrypted emails. Again, G Suite and Office 365. But there are third-party systems out there that can encrypt your email as well. Um, one example would be Zix, Z-I-X. Um, users' devices and other assets are authenticated e.g. single factor, multi-factor, commensurate with the risk of the transaction, e.g. individual security and privacy risks, risks and other organizational risks. Um, kind of going back to our baseline configuration, um, are we doing everything we can to protect the devices and the email? Um, are we ensuring that the security and privacy risks are addressed? Now, so HIPAA, HIPAA is an ongoing process, right? And if you are actively following HIPAA, actively, if you have an active HIPAA program, then you are constantly looking at these things and making sure things are up to date. So I'll give you an, a simplified example. I go in uh, on a regular basis and just make sure that AWS S3 buckets are still not available to the public because all the time we see how AWS S3 buckets were left out to be viewed by the public and it has sensitive information, including some some well-known healthcare breaches. Um, and so I will check, even though I know it's turned on, I go back and I check every few weeks or so to make sure it's still turned on, that, not, that they don't have public access. So that's an, a simplified example. We need to continue to run security analysis and, and uh, privacy risks and so forth to make sure that something hasn't fallen through the cracks um, since the last time we checked. And right now, we're distracted as a nation, as a world, we're distracted, right? And so COVID-19's got everybody's attention. We have relaxed um, tele telemed um, capabilities right now, so you could use FaceTime or Facebook Messenger to, to, to practice telehealth. I said telemed, it's telehealth. Um, and But eventually that's going to go back to normal. 
we're maybe not as focused on hip as we normally would be because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And eventually that will go back to normal. So what happens when it goes back to normal? Is somebody going to provide another assessment and another analysis, another um, uh, audit to make sure that things are where they need to be? And that's where the that's where making sure that uh, users' devices and other assets are authenticated through single-factor multi-factor authentication commensurate with the risk of the transaction. So if we're using email, and this is about email, it should always have multi-factor authentication because every single email breach had had PHI in it, every single one. And it's always the standard, and you're going to hear, we're going to do the HIPAA breach report after this. It's always the standard. Um, we're taking action to prevent this going forward. But it should. Have, it's not hard to set up multi-factor authentication. It's not hard to make sure your email's encrypted. It's not hard to make sure we're, we're at least minimizing the amount of healthcare information that is inside of our email programs. Um, but it continues to happen. So making sure that... Uh, the devices are authenticated, so a smartphone may be authenticated, the laptop authenticated via multi-factor authentication would be the preference, making sure you know the VA uses uh, um, card. You have to have the card plugged into the, uh, the RFID card, plugged into the laptop before it'll work. If it's not, if you walk away, then the laptop is no longer accessible. You know, things like that. So, and of course, they have health information for veterans. And of course, so it's federal. So they need to have it locked down. Um, all users are informed and trained. So this is something we talk about a lot. The, the continued phishing attacks that are successful, and a lot of times it's multiple email accounts that get, get compromised. Right. That means there's not an active training program and training for email protection systems is how do you use it? How do you recognize phishing emails? Then you do some testing. You send a phishing t simulation to your employees, to the healthcare workers and see how they respond. And if they don't respond the way they should respond, then they get additional training. It's, this isn't, you know, going and fire them now. This is additional training. And, and that actually leads to the last point, the phishing simulation, which we just mentioned. The organization's personnel and partners are provided cybersecurity awareness education and are trained to perform their cybersecurity-related duties and responsibilities consistent with related policies, procedures, and agreements. So you could send a COVID-19 sim simulation to your employees and see how they respond to it. And if they don't respond the way you want them to, review it, train them, and test again. It should be ongoing. Uh, all users are informed and trained and all users are kept up to date on the latest cybersecurity threats. Are we telling our employees, hey, there has been a huge increase in COVID-19 related phishing attacks? Are we telling them that? M maybe we are, maybe we're not. I don't know, but we need to be. You need to educate your employees. Um, and it needs to be ongoing. It's not a set it and forget it event. You can't just do it in January and hope that the next 12 months are nice and safe. No, it has to be ongoing. And this is where we're falling short. This is the email protection systems part of the NIST framework and part of the hiccup. Um, health, health industry cybersecurity practices, managing threats and protecting patients' resources and templates. So again, I'll have the link. It's a PDF document. It's 71 pages. This is the one for... Uh, 
I think it's just the one for the small practices, but they have one for small and then they have one for medium and large practices. And it goes into a, a bunch of other areas too, not just email. So it's a good resource um, to take a look at. And then if you have any questions, of course, uh, reach out to us and we'll, we'll help you in any way we can. All right, it is time for our HIPAA breach report. Not a lot to share with you today. Um, first up, the pharmacy benefits consulting firm Confido has started notifying 3,600 of its clients, employees, members, and their dependents that some of their personal information has potentially been accessed by an unauthorized individual who gained access to an employee's email account. The email account breach was detected on December 12th, and an investigation was launched to determine the scale and scope of the breach. Assisted by a third-party security firm, Confido determined on January 17th that an unauthorized individual had access to the email account for a period of two weeks, which is a really long time for email, between November 29th and December 12th. It was not possible to determine if information in the email account was downloaded, but the possibility could not be ruled out. A comprehensive review of the email account revealed it contained names, dates of birth, health insurance information, social security numbers, prescription information, treatment information, and clinical information such as diagnosis and provider names. Individuals affected by the breach were notified on February 10th. Complimentary credit monitoring services have been offered to individuals whose social security number was exposed. The breach has prompted Confido to provide further security awareness training to its employees and additional procedures have been implemented to strengthen email security. And that is, is exactly the point of the HIPAA education piece that should have been done before, not after. Healthcare Resources Group, a provider of billing services to Barlow Respiratory Hospital in Los Angeles, California, discovered that an employee's email account, again, was accessed by an unauthorized individual. An investigation was conducted, which revealed the email account was accessed between November 4th and November 30th, so that's 26 days. An analysis of the email account revealed emails and attachments containing a limited number of protected health information of current and former Barlow Respiratory Hospital patients. A third-party firm was engaged to review the account to determine what types of, of information had been compromised. The review was completed on February 27th and revealed patient names had been exposed along with one or more of the following data, data elements, date of birth, social security number, driver's license number, medical record number, patient account number, health insurance information, treatment information, and medical billing or claims information. Healthcare Resource Group sent notifications to affected patients on behalf of Barlow Respiratory Hospital on April 7th. One year's membership to credit monitoring and identity theft restoration services has been offered to affected patients. So at least they didn't have the standard press release. The This was late last week. The Otis R. Bowen Center for Human Services, an Indiana-based provider of mental health and addiction recovery, Healthcare Services has announced that unauthorized individuals have gained access to the email accounts of two of its employees. It is unclear when the email accounts breach occurred and for how long an unauthorized individuals had access to email accounts. In its website, Substitute Breach Notification, the artist Otis R. Bowen Center said an independent digital forensic investigation revealed on January 28th that PHI had potentially been accessed as a result of the attack. The review of the accounts has now been completed to determine which patients have been affected and those individuals have been individually notified by mail. No mention was made 
about the types of information that were potentially compromised. The Otis R. Bowen Center said the investigation did not uncover any evidence to suggest that any PHI had been misused as a result of the breach, but out of the abundance of caution, affected individuals have been offered complimentary membership to credit monitoring and identity theft protection services through Kroll. In response to the breach, the Otis R. Bowen Center has taken steps to improve email network security and is working closely with leading cybersecurity experts to improve the security of its digital environment. The Department of Health and Human Services breach portal indicates the compromised email accounts contain the protected health information of 35,804 patients. University of Minnesota physicians has discovered two employee email accounts have been compromised as a result of responses to phishing emails. No education. Did we just talk about that? In each case, the phishing attacks were detected shortly after email accounts were compromised. An action was taken on January 31st and February 4th to secure the accounts. An unauthorized individual had access to one account for less than two days, and a second account was accessible for only a few hours. The comprehensive investigation was conducted by third-party computer forensics experts, but it was not possible to determine if any emails in the accounts were viewed or copied by the attackers. A review of the email accounts was, was conducted by third-party specialists who determined the email accounts contained patient names, telephone numbers, addresses, dates of birth, demographic information like race, gender, and ethnicity, social security numbers, insurance ID numbers, location of treatment provider names, limited medical history information, and case numbers. UM physicians started sending notification letters to affected patients on March 30th and is offering complimentary Membership to credit monitoring and identity theft protection services through Kroll for 12 months. 12 months. UM physicians said multiple email security controls were in place at the time. The email accounts were attacked, including multi-factor authentication. Employees had also been provided with security awareness training and phishing simulation exercises are regularly conducted. Refresher training has now been provided to employees and UM physicians is looking into measures that can be implemented to further improve email security. OCR breach portal indicates 683 patients were affected by the breach. So this one is a little interesting because they say multi-factor authentication was turned on. So I'm not sure how they were cracked, um, broken into, but uh, it is what it is. Um, That is going to do it for this week's episode of the Proactive IT Podcast. So until next week, stay healthy, stay safe, and stay secure.